You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Christ is risen. He has risen again. Hallelujah. God be praised for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the victory and the joy and peace that it gives to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, also, happy Mother's Day. These texts, we're not going to preach about Mother's Day, but these texts are begging for at least to say a few words about it. In fact, tempting you to, 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 to think about Mother's Day. Isaiah is kind of funny. In Isaiah, if you look at it in chapter 49, verse 15, the people say, uh, the, the Lord says, I'll never forget you. And the people say, what are you talking about? You've already forgotten us. Look, you've abandoned us. You've left us to ourselves. You're not taking care of us at all anymore. And then Isaiah comes back, or the Lord comes back to Isaiah, and he says, can a woman forget her nursing baby? That's the picture of unforgetfulness. So that the Lord wants the people to say, just like a mom can never forget her baby, but always carries that baby along in her heart, is always thinking about the baby, always fussing over the baby, always taking care, always being attentive to the baby. Everything is happening for this, this love that the mother has for her child. The Lord says, that's my love that I have for you. But, but then the Lord says, well, I suppose a mom could forget her baby, but I can't forget you. It's stunning, isn't it? Can a mother, can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these might forget, yet I will not forget you. So the Lord carries us along and keeps us and protects us just as our own mothers did who cared for us. So the Lord cares also for us. And then Jesus when he's talking about the little while of sorrow and a little while of joy, uses the picture of a woman giving birth. This is in John chapter 16, verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus says that his own death burial and resurrection will be like the pain of childbirth. The sorrow and the anguish of giving birth, which is forgotten as soon as the baby is born. So Jesus says, as soon as I'm up out of the grave, all the anguish and sorrow and pain of the cross will be forgotten and you will have joy that a Savior has been born in the world, has come forth out of the grave. It's really quite stunning. But this curse, the sorrow of giving birth goes all the way back to the garden, remember? How when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they fell into sin and the Lord comes along and is handing out curses and difficulties, he says to Eve, you will have pain in childbirth. And it's not just the pain of, of delivery, but pain in having children, pain in having someone else. You know how it goes with your mom who worried about you. She, she worried, your mom worried about you more than she worried about herself. And if your mom is alive, she still does. Your mom thinks about you more than she thinks of herself. This is, this is what it is to be a mother, is to be, is to have your life found in your children. And the Lord says with, with John and with Isaiah that the Lord himself has that same compassion and love for us. Now it's good for us to it's good for us to remember this. 
It's especially good for us as Christians to remember that the devil hates moms. I mean, he hates dads and children, too. He hates everything good. And motherhood is good. And so the devil will attack it. And we see it in our own day. I mean, we see the devil's attack on fatherhood, on children, on family, but most especially on moms. The idea that being a mother is a lowly place, something to be despised, that we would want something better as if there is anything better. And so it's good that we consider today, Mother's Day, how the gift of motherhood is a supreme treasure. In fact, maybe one more thing about it, and then we'll start the real sermon. Remember in the garden when Adam and Eve fell, and uh, Adam was looking at Eve when God came to him, and he said, the woman that you gave to me gave me the fruit. There's this great animosity, and this great, in fact, you could read in the word, great hatred that Adam had towards Eve. But then the Lord came along and spoke the promise of the gospel. And he says, I'll put enmity between, between you and between the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. And there the Lord promises that from Eve would come the Messiah, the one who would rescue us from sin, death, and the devil. And so now when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, but it's time for Adam to give Eve her name, he names her Eve, which means... Life. I think I think I've told you guys this, too, but if if it was me, if I like, if I was Adam and I had to name Eve, I would have probably named her Moth, which means death. <laughs> it's her fault, or maybe I don't know the Hebrew word for trouble, <laughs> something like that. But look at how godly Adam is. Do you see that he looks at Eve and says this? Now, is the mother of all of the living, and and in doing that, Adam exalts. Adam exalts all moms so that you can call your mom Eve. And you can look at all the moms that are around here and call them Eve, that through them the Lord gives this great gift of life. God be praised. Now now to the task at hand. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. and then he goes on to say this, because the disciples say, what, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And Jesus knows that they want to ask him about this. They don't, for whatever reason, they're afraid to ask him about it, probably because they think that they should understand what he's talking about, and they're a little bit embarrassed that they don't. We don't know. But Jesus knows that they want to ask him about it, and he says, okay, let me tell you. It's in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Now, this little while that Jesus is talking about is the little while of his suffering, his death, and his burial. And the little while that comes later is the resurrection. So for three days, they will be sorrowful, they will weep, and they will be afraid. But then Jesus will be raised, and they will be full of joy. But I want to focus on this little thing that Jesus says right in the middle of this. He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The world rejoices at the suffering of Jesus. The world rejoices at the crucifixion of Jesus. 
The world rejoices at the nails that hold Jesus to the cross. The world rejoices at the agony that Jesus has as he's dying. And I want to, I want to consider this this morning and ask simply why? Why does the world rejoice at this? I don't think it has to be this way. I don't think the world has to rejoice. It could, the world could also see the suffering of this innocent man, Jesus, and, and feel bad about it. But it doesn't. There's a worldly joy at the suffering and death, at the sorrow and the silence of Jesus. And I want to dig in. Now, I have to tell you guys that I think in some ways that we're pulling this sermon out of the oven a little bit too early. I think it needed to cook about two more years. So you guys are going to have to work with me on this one uh, to, to get to where we need to get to. Because I, because I, want, to, I want to preach some things and, but I'm right on the edge of understanding them myself. So, I, so you guys are going to have, have to help me along. Now, we started on this, in fact, on working on this idea already on our Wednesday morning Bible study, and I want to simply flush this out. And let's start at this point. There's an important thing in the way we think about the world and the way we live our lives by the way that we answer this question. What are human beings? What does it mean to be a human creature? This is a fundamental question that we have to ask because it has to do with what we think of ourselves and what we think of our neighbor. Now, the old answer that the philosophers gave came from Aristotle. He said that human beings are rational animals, that we had an animal part of us, our body, and we had a rational part, our soul, and we were, we were body and soul, we were rational and, and beastly combined together, and that made a human being. Now, that's Again, the philosopher's answer, but I don't think it's sufficient, at least not for the Scripture. But it's better, at least, that answer to the question, what's a human being, is better than what our culture tells us. Now, this is what I think, this is what I think our culture wants us to think of ourselves, of our humanity. That we are consumed and consuming. That we are defined externally by what we consume by what we eat, by where we live, by the clothes we wear, by the things that we purchase, by how much money we make, by how good we're doing in life. In other words, we're externally defined by materialistic possessions, and we are internally defined, our identity, defined by who has wounded us or what are the wounds that I've suffered. And I think, and this could be, we could work on this a little bit more, but I think this is really how the world wants us to think of ourselves. That when I present myself to the world, I present myself to the world as a consumer. I'm always being marketed to. I'm always told how I'm supposed to look and what I'm supposed to drive and what I'm supposed to wear and all this kind of stuff. How I'm supposed to be entertained, what I'm supposed to enjoy. That's, that's what my external life is supposed to look like. And when it comes down to who I am, to, to, to who, who I am on the inside, it's a, it's a kind of a piled up business of, of, of scars and wounds and affliction that I've suffered. And you put those two things together and that's, that gives me an understanding of who you are and of who I am. But there's an alternative to both of these ideas, to the idea that we're rational animals or to the idea that we're consumed consumers. And I think this is, there's really profound wisdom it comes from Luther, who was digging into Scripture, and he says simply this, that man, humanity, is justified. It's not just what happens to us. It's a profound description of who we are. We are justifying creatures. 
Now, justification, we know it as a theological word, but before that, it's a courtroom word. It simply means to be declared right or to be declared innocent. It means to be vindicated in a courtroom. And we are all, this is what we understand as a human being then, that we are seeking to be in one way or another, we're seeking to be vindicated. We're seeking to be found as righteous or innocent or holy or good or something like this. And this is, I think, very helpful in understanding yourself and understanding your neighbor that you want to be righteous and so do they. But this introduces a number of other questions. Righteous by what standard? Righteous in whose eyes? And righteous by what means or by what ways? And and if the question is a question of righteousness, then what do I do about transgression? When I've when I've done something wrong. Now now these are big questions that I want to be righteous, but before whom and how and by what standard and what do I do when I'm not righteous? And I'd like to suggest to you that everybody that you know is asking and answering these questions almost every moment of their life. And so are you, even if you don't know it. You're trying to, in one way or another, make the case of your own righteousness or your own innocence, which means... I mean, you know how this, you, you have to exalt your own good works and your own name and all this sort of stuff, and you also have to put down all the things that you've done wrong. Now, there's more. I, I mean, we got, there's a couple more steps to take, but let me just pause there. I wish this was Bible class and I could take questions. <laughs> we can't, we can't stop. We'll never finish. But so, let me, let me pause there and try to simplify where this, because really I think when we look at this idea of justification and that we're all trying to justify ourselves, that there is really only two kinds of justification. Two options for justification. That I can justify myself or that I can be justified by Christ. The law or the gospel. Active righteousness, my own doing, or the passive righteousness of Jesus. It's either works or Jesus. It's only... It's only this, uh, this, this game of justifying myself or it's justification by faith in the promise of the forgiveness of sins worked by Jesus on the cross. And this, this division between these two justifications is a, is a division that splits humanity. There is on the one hand those who are justifying themselves and there is on the other hand those who are justified by Jesus. And in fact, this division... It doesn't just split humanity. It runs straight through each one of us. There's a part of us that wants to justify ourselves. And then there is that part of us which trusts in Christ for justification. Now, true justification, the, the justification of the gospel, the justification upon which the church stands or falls, the justification by faith that Paul and Peter and Jesus and the prophets preach and teach to us, comes to us with kind of with, with two things. It comes by repentance, with contrition and with faith. Now, to be very, very precise, justification itself is by faith, not contrition and faith. It's just by faith in the promise that we're justified. It's just by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins that makes us holy and righteous before God. But contrition, that is knowing that we are sinners, comes first. 
So that we come into this place or stand before the Lord and say that we are poor, miserable sinners. That we abandon the, we, we, we abandon the attempt to justify and save ourselves first. And then we trust in Christ to save us. Now it, ha- it has to be this way. That the true justification, the justification that comes through Jesus, doesn't have any works attached to it because Jesus said it's finished. Remember on the cross, it's finished. And when Jesus said it's finished, that means we cannot say, well, let me help you with that. <laughs> it's finished. Can you imagine that you were like neighbors to some sort of master painter? And there he is in his studio working on his masterpiece for five years. Some, I don't know, some mountain scene. And then he finishes the painting and he comes over and he, with a bottle of champagne and two glasses and he says, come in, in the studio, I want to show something. And he pours the champagne and he gives it to you and he says, it's finished. And you dip your finger in the green paint and said, you missed a spot. <laughs> <Can't> you... <laughs> you could hear the champagne glass dropping to the ground and you know... It's finished. That means there's nothing left to do. You can't add anything to it. That's what, that's what, when Jesus says it's finished on the cross, is what he means. It's finished. You can't add anything to it. And to, and to pretend to add anything to it, or to think that you need to add anything to it, is an insult to the artist who has painted your salvation with his own blood. So that works can have nothing to do with true justification at all. Your own your own deeds, your own accomplishments. They have to be cast out for Jesus to be the Savior, the one who's doing it. It's finished. That means it's finished. There's nothing you can do. Now, false justification or self-justification is exactly the opposite. I mean, not just sort of the opposite, but exactly the opposite. Self-justification can't say that I'm a sinner, that I'm a poor, miserable sinner, because then I've, ex- I've given up the whole game of justifying myself. Self-justification has to start with the basic understanding that I'm a pretty good person and go from there. If I'm going to justify myself, I have to deny sin and Jesus. I have to start with my own goodness and go from there. And I have to either be my own Savior or find another Savior. It can't be Jesus because Jesus is the one who says it's finished. So if you really believe that you are a poor, miserable sinner, then the game of self-justification is over before it starts. Now, now these two justifications, these two ways of living are set against each other, and it can't be any other way. Self-justification and justification by Christ are at war with one another. They're at war with one another inside of you, and they are at war with one another in the whole history of humanity. In fact, if you want to look at the, at the actual physical wars that are fought in the world, it's the war between those who want to justify themselves and those who are justified by Christ. This is all, all the way back from Cain and Abel. That was the story that was unfolding there when Cain killed Abel. Now listen to what, here's a Luther quote. Listen to how he unfolds this. He says, if the, article, if the article of justification by faith in Christ is lost, 
then all true Christian doctrine is lost. Because between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of Christ, or between active and passive righteousness, there is no middle ground. Whoever strays from Christian righteousness, that is true justification, must necessarily fall into the active righteousness. This is to say, if you lose Christ, you must then have a confidence in your own works. If you lose Christ, you must have a confidence in your own works. Now, let's just see if we can kind of get around this with an example. And I think especially uh, one that applies to this is the whole question of tolerance, which we see in our own culture. You know, you see this all the time. The, the, the idea that we have to tolerate one another, that the, that the chief virtue of our day is tolerance. And I, I suppose tolerance, as so, as so far as it goes, which means we, we don't, that we don't kill each other for different doctrines, is good. But you see what's really at work in the idea of tolerance is that it's, it's this game of self-justification working itself out like this. It says, you cannot say anything that would, that would interrupt the game that I'm playing of justifying myself. You cannot say anything that would disturb the slumber of my own conscience. You cannot utter a word that would threaten the argument that I am making with my life regarding my own righteousness. That's what, that's what tolerance is. It's like putting a fence around the game and it's saying, if you're not going to play by my own rules, then you can't come and play. If you're not going, if, if you are not going to, if you are not going to protect with everything you have my own verdict of my self-righteousness, then you have to get out of here. Now this is why those who have embraced the, this, this idea, the culture of tolerance, are, are so, maybe surprisingly at first to us, are so angry with Christians. It's because our Christian doctrine is built to demolish the illusion of self-righteousness. The Christian doctrine is precisely angled to destroy, to make an assault on all attempts to justify yourself. The idea of my own righteousness cannot stand when Moses comes with the law and the Ten Commandments. And the idea of, of saving myself cannot stand when Jesus stands and says that I am the Savior. And so the preaching of the Gospel, the preaching of the Scriptures, the preaching of the law has to be thrown out, at, so you have to be exiled so that your, your voice cannot be heard. Now we see the game for what it is, right? But to the world, it's not a game. It is absolutely deadly serious. That if anything stands in the way of my own self-justification, that thing must be silenced and destroyed. And dear saints, this is why the world rejoiced when Jesus died. You will be sad. But the world will rejoice because Jesus came to be the Savior. 
Jesus came to justify. Jesus came to forgive sinners who needed more than anything else that forgiveness. And he stood with his words and with his life and with his death and with his resurrection. He was law and gospel in this, uh, personified in the flesh. And the world hated it. It could not continue its game of self-justification while Jesus stood there. The Pharisees couldn't couldn't stand there in their sort of exalted self-righteousness when Jesus was there preaching. Pilate couldn't, couldn't maintain the illusion of his worldly power and success while Jesus was there being beaten in front of him. He just can't stand. And it still cannot stand for the world and for you and for me. All of these attempts to justify, to, to, to declare ourselves to be holy, to present ourselves as righteous and, and, and our own Savior, all of it falls short and it must fall when Jesus is here. Because what it really comes down to, I mean, this idea of self-justification or justification by Jesus, what it really comes down to is this. Who is your God or who is your Savior? Jesus will not permit anyone to stand alongside of him as the Savior. It can't be that you're saved by Jesus and your efforts, or Jesus and your works, or Jesus and yourself, or Jesus and your identity, or Jesus and all your other gods, it must be Jesus alone or no Jesus at all. The world hates it. But for us, it is our pure, unmixed joy. Truly, This is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Because Christ is risen. Because Christ is ascended to the right hand of the Father. Because Christ sits on the throne. Because Jesus is the Savior. And because His words are true. It is finished. Your salvation is finished. Your justification is finished. And Jesus has declared you to be righteous, to be holy, to be perfect in His sight, to be immortal, to be raised on the last day. And He has appointed it for you that you would stand before Him in joy and peace. So our joy is full because Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. Hallelujah. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. 
For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to The Word of Hope.